Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that removes the awkward scheduling dance of finding a time to meet. Looking back at the times when we used to exchange 10 emails just to find a time to meet feels like the dark ages, but we still have a long way to go. Most of the other scheduling tools of today put the burden on the recipient, which can be even more inconvenient than trading emails in the first place. Using a scheduling tool should be just as easy for the recipient as it is for you, the sender. And that's SavvyCal. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. Hey there. So just wanted to pop in really quick and provide some additional context for this episode. Andy and I recorded this conversation before Basecamp made a series of policy changes and announcements that you may or may not be aware of that would ultimately lead Andy to decide to leave the company. Our conversation was fantastic, and I don't think that what happened with Basecamp takes anything away from the content of the interview. But at the risk of sounding tone deaf by not addressing it, I just wanted to make sure it was clear that our conversation happened before the events that led to Basecamp's controversial policies. Again, our conversation was fantastic, and I'm really excited for you to give it a listen. On the show today is Andy Diderosi. Andy is the head of marketing at Basecamp and also the founder of the Detroit Bus Company. I wanted to bring him on because Andy is the brain behind the Hey Email Research Lab, Hurl, which produced the famous email dumpster fire marketing stunt. And he also has a long history of entrepreneurship and creative projects, and also has a strong opinions about what it takes to stand out today. So you'll hear about how they drove millions of impressions by literally sending emails on fire in a dumpster. Yes, that actually happened how to think outside the box and do unconventional marketing campaigns like setting emails on fire in a dumpster and how to fight complexity when it's so easy to keep tacking on more and more projects, especially in marketing. The burning question on my mind to start out is, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a tech company? For a no, 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 Mm-mm. nope. <laughs> 100% no. <laughs> if you asked me that uh, two years ago, I'd say, nope, you're crazy. What did you want to be when you were growing up or career aspirations, things, people that you idolize? Well, I really like, I really feel pretty lucky because I pulled off what I wanted to be as a kid, which is a professional race car driver. So I do that on the side, you know, I've worked in the race car industry. So like, I'm one of those few people that got to check that box. And it's through just like, I don't know, being too dumb to give up on it and just, just kept going. And once you have a race car, you are a race car driver. So I've, I've accomplished that one. Mm. So really everything is a, is a means to, to fill that bucket. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. How did that start? I mean, you're, I feel like you're like the true embodiment of like the Detroit person, you know, Detroit native. Um, but like, you know, does everyone in Detroit or Michigan race cars? Like, did, was it like a family thing or like, how did that begin? No, my, my family really wasn't into that. I mean, we've, we were an automaker family, like everybody, you know, all the way up has worked in the shops or worked in the office at an automaker. You know, we're definitely a very car and truck family in that way, but nobody really had any interest in, in race cars or racing or wrenching on stuff. I don't know. I think a little bit of it is going the opposite of the way your parents went. You know, my parents weren't into it. So therefore I really am. I didn't, my mom put me in a go-kart when I was like nine, you know, just because I was drawn to it. I wanted to do it. And so I think that's when you could say I started my racing career and it's been, you know, all, all gravy from there. And it's been, it's been cool, you know, going through it. I, I think the thing about Detroit is not that everybody has their own race car. There's not a lot of racing people around here, but it, everybody does do the thing that they want to do. You know, when your cost of living is, is low enough 
and you have you know a city this interesting you get to you get to follow that passion you get to follow that like art project or or film you want to make or farm you want to build you know you get to be a real participant here versus in other cities you're just struggling for the you know to survive to to pay that rent each month so I, I think Detroit is a perfect space to to follow whatever your thing is. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Speaking as someone who comes from a high cost of living area, I can I can see that being true. Just because you know to buy a house here is basically you have to be a millionaire or become a millionaire through buying a house, and it's uh, it's difficult. You know, there's a lot of different creative lanes. It's obviously we have the beach, we have the mountains, it's sort of thirty minutes away from each other, but. It's it's definitely you know a, a work culture. It's a it's a white collar and blue collar culture here. Yeah, the the you know obviously other areas have like really nice stuff. What I like about Michigan is that we're at like 600 feet worth of above sea level too, and so you know we're climate change resistant. Like I, I think you'll see, especially with remote work, a lot of people moving to um, cities like Detroit, and it can be a problem as well because the high earnings really blow up local home and rent prices. You know, as people move, like Bozeman has been, you know, basically imploded by high net worth people moving in, and that's bogus. You know, that there's no good answer for that except increase housing inventory. So we want Detroit to thrive, but we also don't want it to be overrun. It's a delicate balance. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of creative endeavors and different projects, I managed to find a slew of your own creative endeavors and projects. I mean, there's Tesla Rally Car, Play Freebird. Hoonigan Racing, Paper Street, Motopal, Thunderdrome, Building Mixer, the Detroit Bus Company, Arsenal of Clean, Ride It for a Ride. There's like a million and one. Could you give like a brief overview and maybe like a timeline of how you got to where you are yeah. today? Just so like, and then we can kind of dive in. Yeah, yeah. Else. You've got a pretty good list going there. And every time I look at how many LLCs I have, I go like, oh shit. You know, like my accountant <laughs> is not a fan. So... You know, I really got my start. I was working as a busboy and, you know, f- I, I my friend brought me to like a police auction where you can buy old cars that have been abandoned really cheap. And a car came up and they started bidding at 100 bucks and I just I thought there's just no way. You know, I was like, what was I? 16 at the time. He was 18, so we you know, he bought the car for me like uh, with the paperwork. But the auction was happening and I, I put my hand up to win a car. I think it was 125 bucks. It was Cutlass Supreme. And I cleaned it up, you know, I, I replaced the battery. I didn't know anything about working on cars, but I had friends to ask. And I sold it for twelve hundred bucks. And it blew my mind because at that point I'd been making four thirty five an hour before taxes as a busboy. And so you realize all of a sudden you've got this lever that it's about ingenuity and it's about opportunity versus like time at the crank. And because I was never gonna make that kind of money bussing tables. It would take an eon, you know. And so that was my first taste of like, holy crap, like this is a totally different way to live a life. Before that, I had done, you know, I had, I had done what everybody does, the, the plowing driveways and mowing lawns. And, you know, I had a pretty sophisticated lemonade stand as a kid. Like, you know, I was interested in cracking that nut. I didn't call it entrepreneurship. I didn't even think, you know, think of myself as like a business owner. I just, you know, liked doing those kinds of things. I was drawn to it. I don't know where like that inspiration came from as like a, a really small kid. I'm, I'm not sure. But, you know. I flipped the car. I did a couple more, you know, got into like, there's only so many you can do before you're an auto dealer and didn't want to do that. And so I got into making cars faster. You know, I started a little performance shop, which was a terrible business financially. I still have all these unpaid bills, like in a big box <laughs> from, you know, utility bills we didn't pay and stuff like that. Didn't really work. But what starting this performance shop did was it got me a space. 
I started renting a, a warehouse. Now, I think when I was 18, I'd have to go back and get the numbers on that. But I started renting a warehouse, and all of a sudden, I had overhead. You know, I had like a bill to pay each month. I started to accumulate stuff, which this was kind of a dark time financially. I, I had very little money. I had a safety net because I had my parents uh, and I was living at home. But I constantly was overdrafting my little bank account. You know, I'd I'd bounce the three hundred dollar uh, you know cash withdrawal limit on my credit card. You know, it was just this constant struggle to to get the money together because we had no real cash flow. You know, it was just like this sort of constant black hole that I would do some work for somebody and it would just immediately get hoovered up by the business. And that's kind of been you know that was what two thousand five two thousand four. That's kind of been my existence. <laughs> I don't want it's just been bigger numbers. You know, I, I don't want to yeah. say that this was ever easy or just straightforward. You know, each one of these products that you named had a vision for something that could be cool, could be better, you know, could be improved. You know, over the last 15 years, I've learned that I'm more interested in social mission, that I'm interested in what can actually make my community and my neighborhood better and function better. And so a lot of the earlier projects were focused on like racing and, and fun and, and stuff like that. Now we're still doing fun things, but more like the Detroit Bus Company and Arsenal of Clean are, are social benefit companies. And I found ways of, of making slightly more money and wasting slightly less money. I'm not saying it's, it's fruitful by any means. You know, working a job absolutely provides more net profit at the end of the day. But there's something about entrepreneurship that I'll never put down. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. What what was like if you can just give like a brief, I don't know, like encapsulation or like summary of each one of those like Paper Street, you know, Thunderdrum like uh what were those things that you were actually Yeah, started? totally. So I'll I'll go rapid fire so I don't bore everybody. I yeah. I started the yeah. speed shop and I had a little space and then I I had a really hard time finding my next shop when my lease was up in 2010. And so I I reached out to a person who had a a 20,000 square foot building. This was after the whole, you know, crisis, 2008 crisis. And I said, Hey, what if I lease this building from you on a percentage agreement? And then I bring in tenants and I'll pay you, you know, 65% of the lease money that comes in and I'll keep the third. I didn't really consider utility cost, And so I totally lost money on that, but that was called paper street. So paper street was a small business, mm -hmm. a small business and art incubator really before those were like a thing. And so it didn't have all the structure. It wasn't like tech stars or something. It was just a big building that people had small spaces in. So we did that and that offered me more space. I had 20,000 feet that I can do, you know, things in. So filled it up with tenants through Craigslist, you know, zero cost of promotion. There was a big demand for office and industrial space for small, you know, organizations at this time. And then 2011, I started building minder, which was like property management and like asset liquidation. There was a lot of companies that were still selling a lot of equipment. So we helped them sell equipment. And then Thunderdrome actually was 2010. So there was an old abandoned racetrack here in the city called the Thunderdrome or called the Derive Velodrome. Actually, we called the Thunderdrome. It's a thousand foot around concrete oval. So we started an event to fix the track because it was city owned and in really rough shape. It was abandoned since 1990. Um, so we did a bunch of work on the track, which is still there wow. today. So we got Paper Street, Thunderdrome, Building Minder. And then it was the biggest company by far of any that I've started is the Detroit Bus Company. And so I started that. Our first bus was on the road in May 2012. So I had this warehouse. I had some space that I could do this out of. Transit was really broken here in the city of Detroit. I was very frustrated by that personally. You know, as a transit advocate and still am. And I just felt that someone needs to make a point about this. Someone needs to put some transit assets on the road. So I bought a school bus. Bought an old school bus. I was actually in a deal with the local school system. I helped them sell some of their buses. And then I got one out of the deal, you know, as a, like this sort of horse trading thing. So I had a school bus, which I still own. 
And we ran a route. It was five bucks. You could ride all day. I had no basis in reality to be operating it that way. You know, had a total struggle with the insurance. You know, the running a public bus service is extremely expensive to insure. And, but I found that there was all these party buses around, you know, like why, why, why can the party buses run, but you can't run a public bus to like help people. So we reframed the company. We said, okay, well, we're going to go from this bar to that bar. And then, you know, this other bar that are just so happen to be geographically located that people can also like get to work in school and stuff. And uh, the insurance company was like, okay, you know, and every time I tell this story, my insurance broker is like, please stop telling that story. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the the Detroit bus company, and then did that for a bunch of years. You know, started a nonprofit ride for ride, which gives, give kids free rides to school, um, and school programs. So every time you buy a, a ride on one of our buses, you're providing a ride for a kid through this program. You know, bopped around for a bunch of years. Actually, while still owning all these companies, went out to Park City to work for Ken Block at Hoonigan. You know, one of the biggest names in racing. Ran all of their digital stuff, filmed things, shot stuff, wrote five Instagram posts a day, you know, seven days a week, that kind of thing. Made a few multi-million view videos, which is a lot of fun. Decided that wasn't for me. Left there. Came back to Detroit and was just going to run my, my bus company. And then Jason Freed, the CEO of Basecamp, reached out. And said, you know, hey, we're looking for a head of marketing. Maybe you know someone. And I was like, ah, I don't really know anyone that I'd recommend. But I was like, but I love Basecamp. Like, I, I've been reading the books. I follow all the content. Like, I, you know, loved it for years. I, I was been friends with Jason, you know. And I was like, huh, I'll, I'll, write, I'll write an application. I wrote an application, like, kind of last minute. And I got through the first round. I was like, oh, well, this is an anomaly, you know. Like, there's no way I'm going to make it to the, to the <laughs> main show. So then they had the second round, which is like a work, you know, a work piece that you do. You do a, like a small project. So I did that. And, you know, I, I, I made it kind of weird, you know, like I, I, I was like, uh, I think a lot of companies want to market, you know, using this and that uh, CPC, you know, ads and, and clicky this and clicky that. But I think Basecamp needs something different. I don't think Basecamp can't do that kind of stuff. So I, I thought, well, they're going to hate this proposal. And so therefore, like this, this is over and I'll just, you know, keep doing my buses. And uh, yeah, I got the job. A big spoiler, you know, yeah, I'm here. So that's sort of my winding, winding path through starting these small companies and projects. You know, the bus company is still around. I'm actually in this building right now that uh, for your listeners, you know, is a really rough old warehouse with boards over the windows, you know, but I just bought this place to be our new depot. And I work out of here every day and I work as a head of marketing for Basecamp and Hey.com, you know, and I don't think there's a lot to replicate about my path except for just following whatever you're interested in, in that in that moment. It's it's worked for me. Your results may vary. How's that? Was that a good summary? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Good. Boom, fire. boom. Yeah. If I can, I want to zoom in on, on one of those things because the the question on my mind when I hear like all these different, you know, projects and these really creative endeavors is... Uh, of course, they're like these grand ideas and they seem fun. You can sort of like start doing the work, but then actually, how do you find the people for them? You know, like you start, you, you buy a bus, you start a bus route. How do you get people to to hop on and like get the word out? You know, even for things like, you know, Ride for Rise, starting a nonprofit, like connecting kids with free rides. Like what is the, the distribution and the marketing for these types of kind of, you know, off the wall, these different types of projects that are very locally based. Yeah, especially. yeah. You'd think being the head of marketing that I'd have some sophisticated answer to that. And because we're, <laughs> you know, you're, you've probably got a marketing audience. I can, I can speak in these terms that when I launched the bus company, I had the happy accident that Facebook organic was really wild right then. You know, 
if I had tried to, now this is funny being the head of marketing base camp where we don't use any Facebook, we don't use Instagram, we don't use any Facebook products, you know, I think Facebook was, you know, far less problematic back then. And, you know, who knows, you know, what could have changed, but, but Facebook organic was so wild so that when, whenever I said, Hey, I'm starting to bust for, you know, loop or whatever, our impressions would be off the charts for zero paid, you know? And so we got off to this huge audience, you know, I think we're tracking like 50,000 people on you know, Facebook and that's a local audience too. You know, Facebook for all of its issues is, is the best local marketing tool for social, you know, Twitter, you get nothing local, not nothing. Instagram, um, right. used to be better. You, know, you can get a fan base together, but, but Facebook really is like, you know, 35, 40 to 65, I'd say like, you know, people who are looking to connect with local stuff, talk to their friends. Like it's the perfect, environment to grow a social thing social meaning like you go out and do it with your buddies thing like the bus company you know so we just talked yeah, a lot yeah. we talked a lot on facebook and then we added instagram you know did that too started an email list which i i our frequency is horrible like some years i might send one or two emails i'm like always terrified of the unsubscribes but you know when you buy something or sign up for we get a chance to sign up for the list and so you know we've got a list of, i don't know 30,000 people or something. But this this has been like a very slow growth. This is the slowest growth story ever. I mean, it's been 10 years. You know, every year we get a little higher in in SEO for like renting a bus in Detroit. We, you know, have a reputation for doing good tours and you know, social engagement work. And so it's this very, very slow snowball of, you know, reputation. It's, it's companies have been around 80, 90 years, like that's how they work too. You know, the, the old timey key shop, you know, down the street is not have, doesn't have some sophisticated marketing, a sophisticated mar hitting somebody with a drip campaign who is trying to be a fan of a little bus company is not going to benefit you. More tools is not better right. when it comes to a small company or a company that's trying to be very human centric. Those tools put you further away from your, your, your audience and your people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So diving into Basecamp yeah. a little bit, when you first started, how did you approach the marketing strategy? You mentioned like when you, when you're you know, in the application process and sort of like the work project, like you wanted to keep it a little bit weird. It's a little bit unconventional. So how, how did you first approach it? And I'm also curious, like how did it change over time with the types of projects and campaigns and just like the things that you actually tackled for marketing. That's the funniest thing of all of it is because like I, you know, I had this sort of off the wall application with these crazy ideas. And then, you know, when I started Jason, the, the CEO and I had a lot of calls and a lot of, you know, wild ideas and all this, but then the actual work that hit the road, like the money that got spent, the creative that got made, the, the, the things was actually quite pedestrian. And, you know, it was ads, networks that we believed in, you know, Dribble and buy, sell ads, which is carbon, some newsletters and podcasts and stuff, all great outlets, like stuff that we believed in, but the result wasn't there. And we found it really hard to write these ads. It was just like, like, what are we going to say to people to really get across to them that Basecamp is a different kind of a tool than what they're used to, you know, with, you know, other, let's say Asana and Monday, you know, like it, how, how, how are we, right. what, what words could we possibly say to them in, in 120 characters that's going to get them to take another look at this thing that has a very high switching cost, you know, but still we tried and it, and it shows you how magnetic the pedestrian stuff is, you know, what the sort of classic marketing 
stuff looks like. You know, you just you go towards what's what you think is going to be a sure bet, but you learn quickly there are no sure bets because as everyone else is trying to do the same thing, the cost of these impressions is just getting priced through the roof. You know, you're always going to have it priced just beyond your reach to have it be effective if you're in the same marketplace with everybody else. So we did that for a year and we did not get a lot of results. It was not, we got some results. You know, we launched Hay, which went well. We, you know, switched all our effort onto Hay, the email service, uh, as far as marketing goes. You know, we dug in on that. Who knows how many actual results we got via this paid marketing versus or our organic or word of mouth stuff. But it, it didn't feel fun. It didn't feel exciting. It didn't feel innovative. It didn't, it didn't have all of those things that we really appreciate in projects. So one year we took a radical turn, which you might be building up to, is we decided to stop all of that paid advertisement and, and acquisition and everything and launched uh, what we call Hurl, the Hey Email Research Labs. That's where we are. That's what we are today. Uh, I just came from Love the it. lab covered in dirt and dust, building the next thing, which I will tell you nothing about, which launches, you know, early May, you know, that, that's, that's where we are now. And you want to tee that off or I can do it. Yeah. No, let me, let me jump yeah. into a couple of things before, before we get uh, too far into it. But I'm wondering, first of all, like when we talk about results, attribution is super tough for everyone. And it's sort of like a, you know, Holy grail, like it's not really going to be truly, there existent for for you as much as you'd like to but especially for Basecamp, i know you guys have a big emphasis on privacy and on on sort of data minimalism a bit and like just basically you know trying to avoid a lot of stuff that's why you, you don't use products like you know facebook and instagram how are you actually tracking or how do you know that things were were not effective even with, within that first year with the traditional advertising routes. Well, I mean, at, so there's two things: attribution and data privacy are, are are largely enemies with each other. They're on they're on different different sides of the table. I mean, for you to get true attribution, right. you need to track the shit out of your people, and that's we're just not willing to do that. We just that's not we won't build these data sets. We're not going to fingerprint you. We're not going to rely on marketplace or advertiser. Or, you know, deep data. We just don't we don't want it. We won't book ads with marketplaces that do that kind of a thing. You know, we switched our podcast provider for our own podcast because they were, you know, dealing with, or they were implementing demographic based insertable ads. And we're, we just don't art 19. I think that was, so we switched to transistor, you know, we won't even use tools to the best of our ability. Now, like Basecamp is hosted on, you know, AWS, like, or, or a lot of it is, we're not absolute, you know, you need to switch as many things as you can we're working to get off big tech as much as we can, but you know, nobody's nobody's perfect, right? Like we're we're switching these things the best at the best rate that we can find without you know tipping over the whole the whole apple cart. But so you know, then how do you how do you attribute? The only way you could attribute is if you did nothing else, if you just bought those ads or and but you can never turn off twenty years of word of mouth. You can never turn off. I mean, you shouldn't turn off like conversations online, you know, having our CEO and CTO starting fruitful conversations on Twitter and, and, and doing clubhouses and, you know, publishing blogs and, and, and their own newsletters. Like you're never going to do this stuff in a vacuum. So what you can do the way that we work on attribution, which a lot of people are probably going to roll their eyes, is we go with how it felt. You know, did that feel like something that we'd want to do again? 
did we hear from our constituency? They said, hey, I heard you on or saw you on and, and I loved it. It was great. You know, we did an ad with a uh, marketplace, you know, NPR marketplace. It was great. We had we had tons of significant others and parents and fans online say, heard, heard you on marketplace. That's awesome. That's so cool that I heard this like small tech company that I love on this big radio show, you know, but for a lot of the other ads, we heard nothing. It's crickets. And, and and when we talk to people, we say, hey, do you, have you seen us anywhere? Have you heard anything? Like just friends and hear anything, you know? So, so attribution is really this, this, it's kind of an oasis or a mirage, right? Like a mirage is what I'm looking, that's what I'm looking for is that like you can try to wire things up, but unless you're invading the crap out of people's privacy, you're not going to get it. So what else do you have? You have your, you have your emotional signals. That's how, how did this feel? Did we like to do this? Would we consume this if it was out in the world? And for a lot of these ads, the answer was no, you know, when, we don't want to write it. People want to want to read it. Why do it? Yeah, yeah. I can absolutely see that. I think one of the, like you said, one of the difficult parts too is that even though Basecamp hasn't had a traditional marketing function in the past, you know, with a whole big marketing team and big budgets and whatnot, both Jason and David are great marketers from my perspective because they're very active online. They've authored books. They have huge, you know, social presences. They appear on all sorts of places, right? So to really move the needle, you have to go the extra mile. You have to do things that are significantly additive rather than, you know, just like a, an incremental step. Is that how you Yeah. I it? mean, you know, there's been a lot of software companies founded on getting real. That's my theory. You know, like we don't have anything to measure that, but like they have been thinking and writing and putting out content and useful thought for in 20 years now. Signal vs. Noise had a ton of content, still gets served up, you know, we we have this great thing to stand on. So, you know, when you're on third base, like, uh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do that's different? It's not doing more of that. Like, let's let's say, you know, founder and co-founder output is max maximum. You know, you're not going to, like, a, as me, I, I can't increase, you know, my boss's total sum output. He's, he's doing as much as he's going to do. You know, I can maybe help tee some wins up, you know, but that that's really not that's really not my role. So then you don't do tracked ads. You don't invade people's privacy. You really can't affect, you know, founder output, you know, within reason, aside from maybe like assisting a little bit, make it a little easier. So then what do you do? You know, and what we did was hurl. We, we build these large art projects, you know, I'll describe them as art projects showing what you can do with email. And our first one was the, was the dumpster fire, which, you know, was a contentious one that, Got a lot of clicks, got a lot of traffic, but it's not why we did it. We did it because we wanted to build an interesting thing, a bit of a gift to you know our fans to say like, look, here's a weird thing that we might not make a single extra dollar because it actually probably just cost us money, but we're done putting this money into ads, so let's let's put it in in this, this cool art object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the dumpster fire was one of my favorite. <laughs> sort of stunts of all time I, I remember like giving like a i think it was justin jackson maybe he he had sort of uh gotten a sneak peek and was maybe like talking about it on his podcast after talking to jason or something and then and then i saw it and i was just like what <laughs> like this is crazy <laughs> for anyone who isn't familiar could, like, could you like just give like the the one-liner like what what is that you yeah totally part? so you know we were we were looking for 
this project and one that I had pitched was, hey, what if there was a dumpster fire controlled by, you know, email? You could email it like fire and it would like, you know, light up with this flame because we 2020 is a dumpster fire. You know, everybody joked and said that it was like really part of the common lexicon then. And so then we, we workshop the idea and we're like, well, what if you could email it and it would like burn your email? And we're like, well, that's like, that may be a bridge too far. Like, well, we got to have a printer like constantly whirring away, you know, doing this. But we ran the numbers and we're like, well, you know, most marketing, if you're uh, you know, a Jeep commercial or something, you're, you're blowing a ton of energy and materials and, you know, flying everyone out and cameras and, and all this stuff to do like, you know, so marketing consumes, it, it is what it does. You know, there's not a single marketing thing you can do in this world that doesn't have some consumption somewhere, even your tweets, you know, there's a server warring away to serve those up and, and sucking down energy. So the dumpster fire had a printer on a conveyor and it would print out your email and that email would go up uh, the conveyor on live stream, three cameras, and it would get dropped into this giant dumpster that was had a propane flame, a big flame. All this was inside of a 20-foot shipping container with the side cut open. So we did this in, in the winter in Michigan. You know, good idea, Andy. And, uh, you know, we ran this thing like 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 two months, I'd say, a month and a half around there. And, uh, you know, we saw something like 550,000 people visit it. That's the last number I checked. It's imperfect. We had uh, like 48,000 submissions to the inbox. And I think we like burned like 13,000 of those. You know, we'd do like one every minute, minute and a half. And we ran it like 12 hours a day. So there's only so many you can do. You know, we were always getting more in right. than we could ever process. It was just going to be like an infinite supply. Infinite. Yeah. Right. Right. And and I was right. done changing toners by that point. <laughs> you know, it, there's only so much one can do. But it was it was good. It, it had it looked like you can look up photos of this. You know, you search dumpster fire base camp or dumpster fire Andy or it'll come right up. It, it had a look to it. We had a, some art friends build it. So it had like cool design to it. It was colorful. It was bright. And it was like this catharsis machine. You know, 2020 was a real jerk to everyone. No one came away from 2020 not having something that they were feeling really bummed about. Being trapped in their home, losing someone, losing opportunities, feeling stressed out. You know, the whole thing. The election, you know, you know. God, so all, all this stuff just piles up on you. And so being able to have this cathartic moment, you know, with other people in the chat or, or on your social or whatever, send something in, watch it get, you know, printed lovingly, brought up to eight foot conveyor belt and then dropped into a flame. Like you do that at a bonfire if you were with your buddies, you know, it's, it, but we couldn't be together. Yeah. COVID took the togetherness away from us. So we built this thing, you know, and it was built for fun. It was built to be, you know, enjoyed and marketing was down the list. You know, it, I had no idea whether anyone was actually going to play with the toy or, you know, view it, or you know, maybe it'd be like 1200 visits and that's it. You know, we spent, uh, I don't know, like about $30,000 on it all in, you know, cause we paid, um, a thriving wage to the fabricators and, you know, had to buy equipment and stuff in that, but it worked, you know, it's great. But if it didn't work, we'd still be doing more of these because our motivation is, you know, doing things that we we want to do and we believe in, which is building this stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the, the big things that comes to top of mind for me is like, where does an idea like this come from? <laughs> you sort of mentioned, you know, there was sort of like this saying out there of, you know, 2020 was a dumpster fire and, you know, but you have obviously many other ideas yet to be revealed. And we can talk about maybe one of the other ones I think that is live as well. But I'm wondering like, how, you know, if someone is trying to get inside the mind of Andy and Jason and the, the rest of the, the Hurl team, 
like wh- how do you generate ideas like this that are unconventional and weird and, and scrappy? well you know i i don't have a good i don't have a good answer first i'll just say like there's no great you know one two three you know thing to go through i would say that like we we had a couple things that we decided were our were our like non-negotiables you know you're going to email an inanimate object cool great you know so there's not going to be like a person that you're emailing or like we wanted to be like objects with email addresses so we came up with like a a pretty tight constraint early on so then all of a sudden you don't have to relitigate all of like well what if we email this person and they do that it's just none no and then you know we thought well what would be good to look at on film it's not that it's not that we like sat down and like wrote these like commandments you know from scratch it's as we were working through the idea we had different ideas about like you know could you email somebody else and then something would happen we're like well you really can't like witness that you know it isn't like a shareable moment so we came through with like well what what inanimate object could you email and and have it be exciting have it not take that long you know we we worked through like what's the what's the why that we're getting to what's the you know aside from like why do the product at all like why make certain choices you know and it was so that it was like a sort of a collective moment how how i i came up with like combining like you know email with a fire and dumpster and the conveyors and all that i don't have a good there's there's no good shorthand for that it's the source material that i'm inspired by is a lot of makers online is you know sort of like the david lynch let the inspiration that comes to you like like do what it's going to do you know a lot of things in david lynch movies are because a prop was nearby or somebody made a funny mistake and they kept it in or, or a lot of it is just like they're just going to provide the source material for, to you just you just got to listen you know this dumpster was like owned by a friend of mine it already had a tv hole in the front of it because it was from a different project and so of course we put a tv back into it you know and like the dumpster fire would not absolutely not have had a tv if it didn't already have a tv hole and like just those little things add up to make a really interesting project if you listen to it if you if you stay tuned in if you sit down and you try to plan out too much from the start or if you have like a very immovable vision of what it's supposed to be you're going to miss out on all those little gifts along the way yeah yeah in my mind it, it really like checks a few of the really key boxes for uh, i don't know if you guys measured like impressions at all but i have to imagine you know you mentioned like 550 visitors but like even just like the optics from social media it had to be in like you know, eight figures. Yeah. Uh, yeah, plus. sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was, you know, and, and we like went like super viral and like, where was it? Like Portugal, you know, like, like all of a sudden the whole Twitch, Twitch chat was all in Portuguese. And I was like, this is something's going on, you know? And I found that like a Portuguese, I think it was, I think he was Portuguese. I, I might be getting that wrong, but a YouTuber like talked about it on his show and you know, it flew around and that's great. Like, that's fun. That's cool to see. Like if you make something that, even sort of crosses language barriers that, you know, it's a powerful image in of itself. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm sure the impressions were crazy. We tracked yeah. none of that. Yeah. You know, what are we going to retur- retain a firm, but, but you know, to do said, it? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> all that said, I, the, the reason why I could see that happening is because I think one, like the timing was just impeccable around the election, but also like end of year, you know, like it really, people are ready for something. It felt like, you know, it's like a release of, of energy of some sort. And then there's also kind of like tapping into, you know, striking a nerve with the zeitgeist of, you know, 2020 is a dumpster fire COVID, like tying it back to these big themes and sort of like things that are going on worldwide, but it's also just incredibly novel and weird, right? It's like, who would have 
and people love that, right? It's you, you, you scroll by, like I have a tweet here and I'll, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but you, you start scrolling past this image and you're just like, you have to stop. <laughs> There's no way you can't not stop and start looking at what is this thing and what is it doing and see the real, you know, the, 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 the emails being printed and then going into the dumpster fire and catching on fire. And it's just, it's this great combination of, like you said, all these things are going to come in together to make this, this piece of art. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely like an easy click, right? Like you're like, you're, you're, we, I've had some conversations, you know, in the campfires in, in base camp. And one, one concept that I was thinking of is that like, we want the water cooler, you know, like we don't want, we make email service. We're not trying to get into your inbox that's not a good place to be unless you know we're delivering like a lot of value which most people aren't you know they they talk about delivering value in this but then they'll write some listicle about like the five best ways to you know tune a guitar and like nobody cares but like we want like you to tell your friend you know hey you have to go see this it's crazy you know some people might call that word of mouth but like the water cooler is like i don't know it's a high bar to be interesting to talk about stuff like that and a lot of the oh, yeah. forced virality feels that way, you know, like I, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm, you can, you can really tell when someone is clamoring or a brand is clamoring for that water cooler chat and they're never going to get it. You know, this being said, like our goal isn't building things specifically for virality or, you know, word of mouth impressions or whatever. It's just like, is it cool enough that you'd tell your buddies if yes, then like we've got a chance, you know, that's all like it, it means there's no guarantees. This next project we're building is 10 times more technically complex, 300 times more dangerous by every measure. And, you know, it might be crickets. I don't know. I love it. Well, actually, the, I know you can't speak <laughs> about that, the next one, but there is one that I believe is live, Giggle. Yeah. It's spelled like Google, except with yeah. eyes. I actually hadn't heard of this one before, sort of doing some research and, you know, prepping for our conversation. What is Giggle? I mean, when I go to sort of like the site and it says answers via email at the press of a button. So I, cl I click the button and then I get something sent to my inbox based on sort of like a, a different theme. Like there's poem at Hey, and there's too cute at Hey, and there's magic at Hey. Yeah. So giggle is, is technically the hurl project number two, which was, you know, while we're building the project number three, we needed something that was not physical. We're just, these physical projects are so much um, to put on in just logistics, you know? Yeah. And so Giggle, purely internet-based, it is, you know, if you had a search engine that just relied on an email coming in, you don't, you can't send a query, you know, you can't search for a thing, but what if you just need like, well, you just need one poem or you just need, you know, a cute animal picture. If you go to Google and you search cute animal, you're going to get billions of results, which is fine. Uh -huh. But with these, you know, everything aside from the poems, all the royalties are cleared. So, you know, if you email drumfill at hey.com, that drumfill is yours to use however you want. You know, we paid a thriving wage to the to a drummer to play those and they're yours. And also just fun, you know, like the jokes are are fun and easy. It's it, I, I think like tell me a joke is how Alexa came to be popular, you know? It's like the first thing you showed your friends, you know? Totally. Yeah. So, so, you know, we built this as an enduring tool that'll just be around you know, be around forever, just be a part of, Hey, we're going to add to these, you know, you'll see more addresses come up. So it, it isn't quite like the, you know, big electric, you know, dumpster fire excitement type of a tool, but you know, we'll, we'll keep adding to these. And you know, it, it's something where we don't keep any of these addresses. We don't, you know, send you any drip marketing or, you know, coupon codes or whatever. We, these addresses are disposed of immediately after we send you your, your query, you know? And I, I think that, 
in the moment, you know, marketers go, oh, that's crazy. Why wouldn't you, you know, allow these people to maybe sign up if they choose? Or it, There's two reasons for that. One is it's more complex. We would never build the tool if we had to have some kind of like email sign up loop attached to it. Also, like, that's just not the kind of projects and the kind of company that we are. And we've been that way for 20 years, you know, like we, we rather would under communicate to you, you know, maybe, you know, not sign you up or, or whatever to some campaign than oversubscribe you even once, you know, whereas like imagine the last time you've bought some, even Amazon. Now, if you buy something, you're on somebody's like survey loop campaign, you know, where you're trying to review like plastic knives or something. They're like, please leave us a review. We'll send you a, a <laughs> gift card for more plastic knives. You know, it's like, I didn't consent to any of that stuff. You know, every right. time that happens, you it, it just, it's bogus and you've just, You've just destroyed any kind of brand friendship or allegiance you might have you might have remotely you know conjured up. Now we could talk about you don't get customers allegiance or brand equity from Amazon. You know you're renting your customers from them, but that's another show. Right, right. That's a a rented platform. Going back to a, a couple more things, and then we can talk about some other some other topics. But just to to wrap up the thought on on Hurl, you had mentioned that there was sort of like this like you know one year traditional and then it's sort of like a flip of a switch what was like the catalyst to to change direction and to you know start down this new path with her well you know we have an annual review here at Basecamp. a lot of companies do and it's like a 360 with a self-assessment and i sat back and i i looked at my work i looked at the results that we had gotten i looked at you know just the whole picture and i went you know this isn't really working like it isn't working for Basecamp. like you know i got less and less enthused each you know each turn of the of the wheel and so I was just being totally honest with with Jason and you know during our review I said like this isn't working and like I don't think we should keep doing this, you know? And it's weird for an employee to you know come to his boss and say like I'm not I'm not succeeding because I don't like what we're putting out, you know. I think most people maybe would be would put that onus back on their on their leadership but like we're managers of one here, you know? So if I was hiring me it, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot that was going to change you know would we do that year again would we you know sign up for an exact you know year again of spending you know seven figures or um, six figures not six figures on uh these types of ads and partnerships and stuff and the answer is absolutely not you know like we just wouldn't we wouldn't do that again so you know it was a little bit like i was you know considering leaving under good terms like very you know i love love the team love you know the founders like the jason's an excellent dude but I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to go through the same year again, not having us celebrate what we were making. And so, you know, the door was opened by Jason saying, "Well, what do you want to build then? Like, what you know, if 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 the traditional stuff doesn't work, what do you want to do?" And and doing these projects, we didn't have the whole thing figured out. It wasn't some you know clap of inspiration, but doing these projects was the answer to what do you do instead of traditional marketing? Is you know, follow what you're good at. You know, I'm good at building stuff. I'm good at bringing these weird kind of products together. It requires or requires managing a lot of different contributors and people and parts and logistics and stuff like that. I'm good at that. You know, I don't think the answer is for everybody who wants to break out of traditional marketing to immediately go and start building internet connected, you know, weird, dangerous machines. I think there's a there's a a, a more abstract version of that where you should build the kind of stuff and content and projects that nobody else can do we couldn't walk into an agency and say hey can you build us an internet connected 
dumpster fire in six months or six weeks rather we have six week cycles and get that online and you know get that in front of half a million people they would think you're crazy or they charge you 300 grand you know the truth is is they would charge you three hundred thousand dollars to do that you know and so we we're doing it in-house you know it's something i think that uniquely we can do that nobody else could do this way so for people who are listening and looking to you know do their own thing like what what can you do that nobody else can and you can just break the backboard on yeah, I love that. I love that. One of the things that really struck me as well was through all this, you launched Hey, which was a completely new product under Basecamp. That's an email service, basically a complete replacement to something like Gmail or Hotmail or Outlook. Personally, I really admired the, the whole launch strategy, but I don't want to sort of steal the thunder. Like, could you walk through what the launch strategy was for Hey and how you guys were thinking that about that even you know while the product was still being developed? Well, the, the truth is, is that the the launch of hey was almost entirely you know jason and david a lot of it was that it changed minute to minute you know and i'm not even being facetious there like we had you know prepped this to launch COVID hit so we delayed the launch a bit not because of how we would sell or not sell that wasn't part of it it was it was for our team you know people were dealing with an enormous quantity of stress and anxiety and it's still lots of it is still present today it's not really eased up but you know, we just wanted to buy some more time for us to, you know, totally flip our lives over and, you know, get, you know, all pandemic set up. You know, I went out and bought 50 pounds of flour or whatever everybody did. So we delayed the launch, but then when we launched it, you know, it was, it was popular. Like people just like talking about it because it's a bold thing to say, we're going to, you know, rebuild email. We're going to reinvent email. And then we had some news cycles, you know, we had the, the app store stuff, which was, you know, uh, a surprise. It wasn't something that, you know, that, that we expected, of course, you know, it wasn't conjured up and, you know, Jason and David handled all the, the PR and marketing and, and, and stuff wrong with the, the hay launch. And so I, I was there as a support person to, you know, keep my antenna up and, you know, pay attention and hosted some live streams and, and stuff like that. But, you know, it went, it went really well and it was kind of a once in a lifetime launch to look and feel like that. I'm glad the app store stuff got figured out. You know, I'm glad that, you know, we were able to do our work and just get this in front of people because I think it makes life easier. You know, I, I'm biased because I'm the one marketing it, but you know, it's, it's, it's much easier to share word with people when you believe in the thing and what it does, you know, versus selling some widget that you don't, you yourself don't use. You know, I use, Hey, I use Hey every day. I got a tab open right now with Hey in it, you know? And, and so we're just, we just tell people how it made our lives easier because we used it at Basecamp a year before we launched it. And, you know, it makes it real easy to write the copy then. Yeah, yeah, especially when it's, it's so close to your workflow and you, you have that experience with it as well. One of the things that struck me is too was the sort of like the announcement with the landing page and asking people to, to email with a sort of like, a, you know, what's your experience been like with email and like tell us. Uh, and there's sort of like this, you know, nomenclature and messaging around, you know, Hey, is our, our love letter to, to email. Are you at liberty to share any like numbers about like how many people signed up? Like after you launched, how many people sort of like became customers or at least tried the product just to get a sense of like what success looks like for them. I, I, I don't even have, I, I, I don't know. We had that as it was like a Zapier connection to, you know, a list. And then we send out the invite and then we deleted it. You know, we didn't maintain any of those addresses. We didn't, you know, subscribe you to some list. I don't even know what those those numbers were. You know, we had the hey waiting list with the invites, and then we had the you know hey for work, you know, launch that 
went out. Now we've got hay for domains soon. You know, you know, the it, it's just like we use the list because it's ready when it's ready, and we want to you know let you know just as a convenience so that you're not waiting. But none of those lists have anything connected between them. You know, when a list is done, it's thrown out, and I think it's pretty unique. I really haven't heard or seen that anywhere else. You know, people hold on to these lists like they're gold. But like just because you signed up for an alert about the launch of one feature or product doesn't mean you've consented to, you know, be alerted for other ones, you know. And we did launch Hey World, you know, which is our newsletter service that comes free with every Hey account. We're seeing a lot of use there and a lot of enjoyment there. And we switched all of our, we don't do, you know, MailChimp any longer. We don't do a signal versus noise or blog any longer. You know, we've pivoted entirely to, you know, Jason and David having their own Hey World accounts, you know, other base campers having Hey World accounts. And that's the way that we put out long form now is via these lists. And part of it is because we want to share our new product with people, you know, use the thing that you've built. But the bigger reason is that it's easy. Yeah. You know, it's like signal versus noise got a little harder to write for each each year. It just it's been around for so long. What hasn't been said, and you know, the format was really representing like the whole company. Whereas Basecamp doesn't work that way. You know, we don't have, aside from like alerts, you know, we don't have social conversations via you know the at Basecamp handle or at Hey Hey handle. We we use real people. You know, because a brand saying Merry Christmas to you or something is so weird and disingenuous. Whereas a real human can have, you know, conversations and aspirations and complain about stuff. And, you know, that's, that's, that comes from people. It always comes from people, but unless you're the at stake account, I don't, I don't care about your corporate handle. <laughs> that's the one that you, that you admire. At stake is very funny. Yeah. Someone, someone, some, there's a, there's a team of smart people there. Yeah, Absolutely. Switching gears a little bit, but you had mentioned before that one of the things you were excited about was kind of like what's happening with sort of these movements in pop culture and just around the U.S. and even globally. I'm wondering what is the GameStop rally, kind of like the meme stock, you know, Wall Street bets kind of phenomenon taught you about movements and about storytelling and about these things that happen that get communicated and spread across these huge groups of people. Well, I, I've been saying for years and years, mostly in the in the purview of uh, crowd investing. You know, I think the Jobs Act really hasn't been realized the way that it it it, it could be. Like, there's a lot of energy there because nobody has more money than all of us. You know, <laughs> like if we are able to to efficiently organize and make something happen, if that's either through like a purposeful movement where people are getting together funds in a in like a single company or vehicle, or if it's a thing like the GameStop movement where by law, people could not coordinate. It was a very decentralized movement. A lot of it happened on you know Reddit and the Discord. But other than that, it was, it was coordinated through like headlines and a stock price. I think it was wild. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat through uh, the whole thing. And, you know, the, the Robin Hood shutting down trading, you know, was unbelievable. And I, 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 I expect to see some kind of, you know, legislative action or something about that to protect retail investors. But it, it it really upends the whole Wall Street everything to see that enough people can get together to completely change the winds on a, on a trade. And, and the fact that they were claiming that these retail traders weren't acting rationally, the real word there is that they were acting unpredictably. Because when you can predict what the market's going to do or what, what traders are going to do, you can make a lot of money as a billionaire. But when when people just buy stock and hold it through all of these 
times when stocks are normally sold by professional traders, the whole lid comes off the thing, you know? And I, I, <laughs> I felt we were a day or two, if Robinhood didn't suspend trading, I felt we were a day or two away from some kind of a huge meltdown. You know, if this, if the squeeze actually, <laughs> sorry for going so deep in this. I was very passionate about this, this particular news oh, no. item. If the squeeze actually happened in the way that it was, you know, mathematically predicted to happen, who knows what the fallout from that would have been. And we'll, we're going to see more about this. We're going to see a movie, of course. You know, I, I, I follow Keith Gill. Like, I, I think the whole thing is just, is just thrilling because the, the, the meta game there that people can, people can get together to change or upend something that we've taken as a, as an immutable is, is limitless. You know, it is totally limitless. And I don't think, I don't think the takeaway there is like, look for the next meme stock. I think the takeaway there is these systems that you think can't be changed can absolutely be changed with just a couple, just a couple tweets maybe. And, and mm -hmm. so I, I think weaponizing that for marketing purposes is is actually kind of uh, banal and 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 boring. I think if, if someone right. tries to do that for a company, they'll be much maligned. I think there's a bigger social movement there, and maybe we can have all the collective action stuff we've always wanted. You know, solar panels and flying cars if we just stick together. Right, right. Yeah, I think the the interesting part for me was just thinking about how, like, now we're at a time where we can do this with the sort of democratization of media and access to you know for anyone and anyone to be sort of like an influencer right or, or part of a movement for people to collective collectively kind of come together and to to coordinate and to talk about hey here's what we're going to do or here's what's happening or here's what we here's what we should do on places like twitter and reddit and discord and all these places that didn't exist even you know 10 15 years ago and so it really yeah it makes you start thinking about well what's next and what does this really mean and does this start happening more more often? And what are the other ways that this play out? And basically just the, the interconnectedness that the, the internet brings us, how does that change the way that we interact with each other and how even society works? Well, like, you know, the thing here is that like coordination tools, networks have been around for a long time now, you know, and internet years have been forever. But mostly those have been increasingly algorithmically driven where the network really gets to say like what people get to share and talk about and do. You know, I think Wall Street bets sort of broke Reddit in a way in that they were generating and using the comments as their own threads as a way to to be destination driven, where they're saying, I want to talk about this specific thing, and so I'm going there. And so they kind of turned the comment section into their own forum. You know, like, I guess you call Reddit a forum in a way, but the way that it serves front page stuff is very algorith algorithmically driven. So if Wall Street Bets didn't have a subreddit, it'd be very hard for them to congeal into this like group of, of doing stuff. And then you had the Discord come out of that. You've had a you had a mod base in place that was able to you know keep the lid on it and and keep it sort of organized. I mean, come on, it was, it was Wall Street Bets like it was insane. And there's a lot of like really terrible stuff that happens in those in those forums too. But like the the coordination there was despite the algorithm you know and it didn't happen on twitter didn't happen on facebook didn't happen on instagram didn't happen on you know any other alg algorithmically driven thing so i think as like decentralized markets and as you know as as the crypto space evolves to include more communication tools and more utilities and less you know store of value i mean it's still have store of value but you'll have more utilities come out of there that are built and driven in a way that that people really want. So you're only going to see more uh, of this collective action, but no one's going to be able to guess what it's going to be about. 
what it's going to be for, where it's going to be. You know, you can't conjure it up. You can't make it. I'm sure people are studying the hell out of it right now to try to. There's tools now to to analyze like Reddit sentiment for stock tickers. You know, I think that's the. They're looking at the wrong thing. That's a red herring. You know, I'm really excited to see what comes out of this, and I hope it's good, because we saw what right. collective action can do. That's really bad and dark. You know, the the Capitol riot was the same thing as a GameStop stock just with assholes. You know, <laughs> like it was just like the other side of the coin right. where people were constantly buying this this line about, you know, however, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but like they were buying this state of mind. The algorithm stepped on the gas. It fed more and more and more and more of this stuff in. You know, that was created through Facebook groups and politicians and, and all this stuff. And uh, it resulted in that. And, and enough people got together that they thought that was a good idea. You know, like if you talk to a rational person and you said, hey, we're going to go storm the Capitol and nothing bad's going to happen to us. You'd be insane, right? Like you can't you can't do that. Right, right. So like really, we've had two massive collective action events so far in the last few months. Just very different sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very wild west. It's sort of early innings for how this kind yeah. of plays out. One of the other things I wanted to touch on was complexity, something you've been writing about and talking about, I saw, actually, I think that was one of your early kind of posts on, uh, on Hey World, if I'm not mistaken, but it, it, it's one of the things I've been thinking about as well, because I think with marketing, it's easy to just do more and more and more and more and for things to, you know, the scope to get larger and larger. And you just kind of want to like stack on these things. What are your thoughts on complexity and sort of the, the scope of what you do and what you're uh, doing? You know, I, at risk of sounding like one of these new minimalist influencers, like Complexity can creep in, in in like your own personal life, you know, like that's the smallest unit and then in your projects and then in your company, you know, you just, there's this, there's this like natural drive towards complexity, like reverse entropy. Like you will always add things to your life and your world and your projects and all that by default. And that it actually takes like a learning that takes deliberate action in the other direction to cut things out, you know? Like your natural state as a as a maker of stuff, doer of things, buyer of things, is actually an action bias. So like you, un uncontrolled, will just you know, just clicky clicky buy things, you know, Amazon, this and that, eBay, mm. Instagram shopping now, like buy buy buy. It just it's just what you do, and that's the material side of it. But like when you talk about your projects, a group of people can always add to that project. It's very difficult to remove from the project. Which is funny because it's actually easier as a member of a team to be disagreeable, to um, say no, because if you say no to something and then it turns out that, you know, that no was a good idea, everyone celebrates. But if you say no and you actually shouldn't have said no um, or disagreed, then everyone just sees you as shrewd. You know, there's like this this funny, you know, inverse incentive to, you know, to agreeing in a, a meeting, a different conversation, but like, but oddly it's easier to add to things to say, we want this feature and that feature and add this thing and this, and let's push this deadline out and, and, and just like make this bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's really like the role of like one or two people who are central to planning to say, no, it's simpler. We're doing less to, to go to their technical people and to say to them, you know, what's the shorter path we could take not not to make it worse not to not to you know cut corners or 
but like making Basecamp always says half a product, not a half-ass product. You know, like you want to do fewer things better, and everyone always says that it's impossible to like get that aphorism through to people until you've lived it yourself. You know, our most recent project was yeah. was just like this Homer Simpson car of complexity, all this stuff being tacked on. And a lot of it for me, like this isn't anybody else's fault. This is me saying like, it should do more and more and more and more because you want to succeed. You want to have your next project be better than the one before it. And I've learned, and I'm here to share that like making it more complex is likely not what you want. Your life's going to suck more. And it's likely not what your audience wants. You know, they don't, they're, they're, you, when you try to guess what they want, you're, there's a push towards maximalism, but really they, they, that's not, that's not going to get you more impressions, more celebration. It's just going to make your life more expensive and harder. So I wrote about that because I'm trying to live that more. You know, I'm, I'm no, I'm no expert in reducing uh, complexity. I, I, I love having all the things I'm a hoarder by, by trade, <laughs> but, but yeah, there's, there's something really to making things simpler and to, and when you when you have a task or when you when you think you need to do something, you, you probably don't need to. You know, I, I I've practiced this pretty religiously the last few weeks, where I always want to go, you know, the extra mile. I want to go to eleven, and I just I choose not to. And and all of a sudden, schedules get open. Effort there's extra effort. There's more time. I sleep more. <laughs> like the benefits are endless. You know, that perfect life you want is uh, just hiding right behind not doing the thing. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. One of the fun questions I've been asking more recently is, what's something that you've bought recently? Like, is there, can you walk me through the experience of something top of mind or interesting that you bought? We can do like a kind of reverse, you know, jobs we done kind of customer journey. Interview. Yeah, this is boring and personal. So it, I, you know, I have a, I have a king size bed. I bought a king size, uh, what Casper, like, I don't know, right when they launched. It's ancient, right? In in bed terms. So has king size bed. It's sitting on plywood and cinder blocks, as you'd imagine. You know, if you're viewing the video right now, that won't surprise you at all. But I've been using the comforter, the queen size comforter that I've had for eons, right? Like, I don't know. I think, I'm just guessing a lot of guys, like the evolution of their bedding is not at the top of their list. So, you know, I have a, a, a long-term partner now. We live together and she's put up with this queen size comforter on the king size bed forever, just forever, you know? And there's never enough to go around. You know, we have a dog that's very uh, bed hoggy. Like it is always this constant struggle. I, I, I slept bad for years, partially because of this stupid comforter thing. And so then I, I went into the, the, the research hole. I, I was Googling best comforter ever, you know, and, and ooh, the, the RDS down and the goose down and the duck down and the 300 fill and the 400 fill and the summer weights and the, the winter weights and, and complexity. There is every kind of comforter out there that you could possibly imagine. Every combination, every combination of price. And then you get into shipping times, availability, discount codes, you know, on and on and on and on. And finally, this was maybe three months ago, I like pulled up the Target website. I was like, this one, this Nate Burkus one, it looks fine. It's it, it looks good enough. I've never seen it in person, but I don't care. Click this you know, duvet cover, this, uh, comforter insert, it's responsible down. It's uh whatever animal. I don't, I think it's duck or something. I don't really care. Click like send it my way. Things showed up. I don't know, $180 later. Excellent investment. I actually just commented like two days ago. I was like, Lisa, we've gotten more joy per dollar from this stupid comforter than almost anything else in the last like five years, <laughs> because it just makes 
it makes like that eight hours a night sleeping so much better. There's just like extra comforter to go around, you know? And I, I, I it's I so it. pedestrian, but like the jobs to be done thing there is like, I, I, I probably woke up from another crappy night's sleep. I was sick of doing the comparison thing, you know, just like constantly overthinking this. I was like mentally preparing myself to spend like a thousand dollars on a comforter. Like who am I to spend a thousand dollars on a comforter? And so I just clicked the button and it was done. You know, it was done and it was over. And I, I, I bet you there's a dozen other things in my life that like things that just needlessly suck because I'm overanalyzing or overthinking it where I could just pull the trigger and get it done. You know, you, for your listeners, like I'm holding up like this giant water bottle right now on the camera. You know, I'd wanted one of these stupid big hydro flask, whatever water bottles forever. This is a knockoff one from like Meyer or something, which is a big grocery store chain here. It's called a Takaya. I have no idea what that is, but I just want to check the box of like, I wanted, what is this? A liter and a half of water with me at all times. Just click the button. Just be done. Tim Ferriss calls this like the choice minimal lifestyle. Like just accept like 10% more cost and 10% less ideal fit for like so much more ease. Mm. Just do the thing, you know, like you on your deathbed, you're not going to worry about what brand of water bottle you had. Stop overthinking it. You know, I'm saying that to myself as much as you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. We always have to self-talk. I'd also love to take a peek at your personal swipe file as it were just into, you know, some marketing examples or campaigns that you think are worthy of saving or just, you know, top of mind or ones that you've always admired. Are there a few that you could walk me through for like, what is, you know, what does Andy really admire? about other companies or other campaigns. Yeah, I'm in love with um, this one, vacation.inc right now, vacation.inc. So there's a service called Poolside FM, poolside.fm. And what Poolside FM is like, it's grown. It used to just be like this web player that played these like really chill, sort of like, I don't know, like 80s inspired poolside chill music. And it had this like cool, like it looked like an old Mac player, and then they added to it. They made it like a desktop computer. They added like a little bit of merch. They have like this video player that plays these sort of like clips that are loosely related. It was just this joyful internet tool, you know. And Poolside was actually very inspiring for building the Hurl website, which works like an old, you know, mainframe server with these closable windows and scrollable things. You know, it was cool. It was fun because we, I think we all sort of are nostalgic for old internet, right? Like it just like it was a better time like – on like our parents' AOL account, you know, dialing up and, and swapping files and like doing Napster. And like, those are just like, it's probably because I'm 34. It's probably because those were, you know, my happy teenage years where, where, you know, you just mess around the computer from 3 PM until, you know, two in the morning. It just, just different internet now is a, is a job, <laughs> you know? So right. poolside's very wonderful. Vacation.inc is their sunscreen line that they launched. And the launch is, is just genius. They have a thousand honorary titles to hand out. Like I think I'm pool bar journalist. Only a thousand. That's it. They're free. You don't have to sign up. Or I think you have to do an SMS thing. But I don't care because like poolside so far in my life has been this like easy, fun thing. If poolside wants to send me like a text message, I know it's going to be fun. I know it's going to be probably a little weird. I know it's going to like I'm going to see the message from poolside and go like, yes, yay. You know, I'm never going to be like, like leave me alone crocs you know like it's not like i would never sign up for like an sms from crocs like i don't know why they're my example but like you know what what are you gonna get you gonna send me a 15 percent off coupon i don't care right, whereas right. the, the vacation on inc is the launch of their sunscreen line and the i pre-ordered sunscreen Corey. like i get it in june 
You know, like I paid twenty dollars on Vacation Inc. to pre-order sunscreen. I don't care about sunscreen, but they described it as the best selling, the best smelling sunscreen ever. I want to smell it. I want to be the one with the Vacation Inc. sunscreen tube when I eventually go out to a beach somewhere. And it just like it was the perfect click. Like I I I, I auto filled that credit card thing so fast, you know. And so it has like a viral loop. You know, if you if you share it with people and you get three signups, you get a tube for free. Twenty bucks for a tube of sunscreen is like three times more than it should be, or four times more than it should be. Like they have tons of extra bucks in the tank for this marketing mojo, and it's just like the perfect extension, right? It's like it's like a health product. You should wear more sunscreen. I'm terrible wearing sunscreen. It's like so it's aspirational. It it's like you're prepaying for like fun because sunscreen means you're outside, like enjoying your life. So, so who knew that like a little web app music player would be able to come out with a, like a a CPG, you know, all these acronyms, CPG, DTC, you know, a consumer product package, good direct to consumer, but it's the perfect fit. So I'm in love with it. You know, five stars don't even have the sunscreen. Don't care. I love it. Yeah. It's funny. You, the way to describe it, I actually hadn't, I had seen it around, but I didn't actually know what it was. And so I, I was just seeing like, you know, my Twitter feed was just filled with all these people posting this picture of like these, you know, honorary titles. Yes. Like, what is this? But it was like, it's so interesting. I didn't actually take the time to go and look, but the virality is amazing. And just like the creativity of, you know, a thousand sort of fun, quirky titles is, is all, so all of it. And you, you, the uniqueness of those titles, like that I'm the only one that's the pool bar journalist, you know, like you, and of course it was done through like a random generator or, or, you know, they weren't sitting there like writing every single one. Maybe they were, I don't know, but like it, it had this kind of like roll the dice thing. You hit, you hit like a generator and it like sent one to you. But, but the fact that like, there's only a thousand of, of these you get it for free. You don't have to buy the sunscreen to get the title. So it's more inclusive. Like it was always important to us with these hurl projects that anybody in the world would be able to play it. You don't need to sign up. You don't need to have a, a Hey address. You don't need to sign up for some email list. We have some perks for Hey users. Like Hey users get to cut the line. If there's like a line for commands or that's our way of saying, thank you. Like we recognize you as a customer and we want you to feel included in this like cool thing that we built. But like it, it's really important to me and why I like this poolside thing so much is that you don't need to spend any money to do it, you know? It just feels cool. It's just like it, it, cool is intangible. It's hard to – you can't really put a, a a word or a price or anything on that. Like it just it just feels cool. And it, yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's so hard. It's so hard to try to to try to package that up. And thank God it's hard, <laughs> you know? Well, I think when someone's doing it, right, and we get to actually experience it and people are out there making cool stuff and weird yeah. stuff and enjoyable yeah. things. Yeah. Last question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that, what does that mean to you? What the minute I saw the title for the show when I got the invite was I thought about my confirmation emails from the bus company, you know, because everybody mm-hmm. who has a web form has a mailing list, 99.9% of them have the default text, you know, and if you've changed the default text on your like MailChimp signup form, the, the confirmation that you get, I know you give a shit about what you're doing because it meant that you went into the settings, you dug in, you made it fun, you like gave it some of your personality. There are hundreds of customer touch points that nobody optimizes. And optimize does not mean optimize for you know being 
more attention grabbing or higher converting or optimized to me just means like more fun and enjoyable, you know? And so if you, if you find these little moments and you optimize them, make them more fun, people will respond. You get a hundred percent return on that. You're never not going to get a return on making those things better. Actually, you probably get a, a 12 million percent return because you could set a better outgoing notification for your email signup list. It would take you 10 minutes once, you know, I think I set mine up in like 2012 and you never have to go back and change it again if it isn't like a timely thing, right? It just, it's forever you. So it's always out there working as your little soldier, helping people understand what you're about more. When we sell, you know, we start Arsenal of Clean. I didn't tell you about that. The hand sanitizer company with uh, the bus company, every box that goes out, yeah. handwritten note, sticker in the box, our labels look cool. You know, the packaging is, is compostable. We do all those things because we want you to, when you get it, it should it should feel good. It should it should you should celebrate that. We ship the hay T-shirts out of this building here, and the same staff that does the hand sanitizer, they do the hay T-shirts too. Every hay T-shirt, two stamps on the box, handwritten note with the person's name. It's not just notes that we just write and write and write, and you know, we, it's with the person's name. Stickers in the box, custom hay uh, craft paper, because if you're buying a T-shirt for an email service. You are a super fan. You should be celebrated. You know, the shirts are at cost. They're like 13 bucks. We ship them anywhere in the world, which like some of these shirts, when we ship them, it's like 50 bucks to ship it. Doesn't matter because we get to say, if you're a Hey fan and you're ordering a t-shirt from an email service, you're going to wear our logo on your body and you're going to go through the world celebrating our logo. We should do everything in our power to get that thing to you. You know, free t-shirts. Uh, nobody wants a free t-shirt because the t-shirt quality is crappy. Lots of people click them who actually don't want them. They just like, like free stuff. I think the perfect way is to sell it at cost to have the, the packaging and everything be completely on point and fun and ship it anywhere in the world because you should be thanking these people for celebrating you. That's marketing. I love it. Amazing. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming on, for being transparent, being honest, sharing your thoughts on all these things, giving the, the, the inside scoop. And I appreciate you. Yeah, all day, man. I, I appreciate you, you know, trusting me to, to take a slot on your show. And, uh, you know, any marketers out there, you know, I'm rooting for you. Like it's, uh, it's, it's, never, it's never been easier and it's never been harder. So, you know, good luck. Thanks again to Andy for coming on the show. And make sure to check out, hey, Basecamp's new email product. In Andy's own words, if you're sick of how broken email is, try Hey. If you like your email the way it is, don't try Hey. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.